You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. We'll read the first 17 verses of that chapter. Notice it says above our reading in Corinth, here the Apostle Paul is in Corinth, and we receive an account of what happened to him there. The Word of God opens after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next day or next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. Gallio showed no concern, whatever. I also preach to you this afternoon for the word of our God as the church summarizes this in Lord's Day 25 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does this faith come from? From the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy visible signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross 
as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments has God instituted in the new covenant to holy baptism and the holy son? Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, the Bible has a lot to say about faith. And as a result, so does the Heidelberg Catechism as well. You may recall that way back in Lord's Day 7, question and answer 20, we were introduced to the necessity of faith and we were taught that we were saved only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. And then in that same Lord's Day, the next question and answer 21, we were taught the definition of true faith as being a matter of a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. A sure knowledge of the Word of God and a sure and firm confidence in the Lord. And thereafter, in Lord's Day 7, we were also informed about the contents of true faith. And indeed, you could say the Lord's Day 7 all the way to 22 actually deal with the content of true faith. What is its substance? What is its character? Well, uh, beloved, also after that, we turn to Lord's Day 23, where we were taught about the great benefit of faith, namely that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are made righteous by Christ. And last time in Lord's Day 24, we were instructed about the proper relationship between faith and works, true faith and good works. And, of course, now you might be wondering, is there then anything left to discuss? Haven't we pretty well touched on all the basic points that need to be dealt with? Well, not quite, for there's one more thing that needs to have our attention, and it's about the origin of faith. In other words, as Lord's Day 25 asks the question, where now does this faith This faith in all of these previous Lord's Days, where does it actually come from? And what does it originate? And you can say that as such, that's a rather basic question. This is something that we all need to know. It should be of interest to each and every one of us, and yes, especially it should be of interest to these parents who have just had their baby son baptized. Where will the faith that my child needs, where will it come from? Where does the faith that I need, where does it come from? Who will work it? And what will keep it working? And so, beloved, this afternoon I'd like to preach to you on the following scene, the wondrous gift of faith. We shall first ask the question, what works it? Secondly, what feeds it? And thirdly, what supports it? So what works it, what feeds it, and what supports the wondrous gift of faith? 
Well, beloved, we are well aware that in this life there are a lot of different kinds of things that parents can give to their children. There are, of course, all kinds of things like love and patience and kindness and goodness and mercy and so forth. There are also other things that we like to give to our children, for example, manners, although that seems to be an ongoing struggle, doesn't it? And then there are other things as well, like food and shelter and all of the basic needs and necessities of daily living. As parents, we can give our children a lot of things. And we can also give to our children, as it were, deeper things. For example, a sense of security, a sense of, of worth, of, of value. And at the same time, you might also add, at the other end of the spectrum, parents can also sadly give their children a sense of insecurity, of timidity, of fear, of confusion. And what about attitude? It strikes me that if parents are hospitable, chances are that the children they raise will also turn out to be hospitable. If, on the other hand, the children or the parents are supercritical, it's often the case that the children end up being supercritical as well. Or if the parents are involved in the life of the church and its ministry. And the children are usually involved as well. And you can say, so the list goes on and on. There are many positive as well as negative qualities that parents can and do give to their children. Some by design and maybe some by accident. But there's a lot of stuff that we pass on to our kids. And that raises the question, but what about the most important thing in this life of all? What about faith? Can parents give faith to their children? Can they instill in their offspring this sure knowledge and this firm confidence of which Lord's Day 7 speaks? Can parents cause their children to believe and to grasp hold of the triune God? The answer of the catechism, which is an answer that simply echoes the message of the Word of God, is no. No. You cannot. And you know, that answer kind of disappoints us. We see our children whom we love growing up and sometimes struggling with the matters of faith. They don't pray as often as we would like them to pray. They don't read their Bibles as diligently as we think they should. They don't involve themselves in the life of the church. They don't get connected with the young people Or they hang out with the wrong kind of friends. Or else sometimes even worse, sometimes our children show little or no evidence of faith at all. Their words and their conduct and their deeds have much more in common with the world of men than they do with the kingdom of God. Yes, and when we see that, then our hearts ache and our spirits begin to sink. 
You know, a number of years ago, a book was written by a man by the name of John White, a Christian psychologist, who had done a lot of counseling, and he ended up writing a book about a lot of his experiences, and the book title was Parents in Pain. Well, I would hazard a guess that still today there are a lot of parents in pain. They wish that they could make their children see. They wish that they could make them understand. They wish that they could cause them to believe. By desperation, some parents will even try to force the matter. They use threats. They'll use temper tantrums. They'll use incentives. They'll use the cold shoulder. They'll kick them out of the house. They so much want their children to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that they will try almost anything and everything. And that, beloved, is understandable. You need to realize at the same time, however, in the end, that it is not possible. Faith is not ours to give, to dispense, or to pass along. True faith is ours, you might say, to teach, to share, to model. True faith is ours to hope for and to pray for in the lives of our children, but in the end it is not ours to give. You can't pass it along like an old clock or a family Bible. Only God is able to dispense faith. Specifically, only God the Holy Spirit can grant it, work it, and create it. It's His exclusive prerogative and domain. And you know, that's also the clear teaching of the Word of God. Consider, for example, what you find in various passages in the Old Testament. One that comes to mind is rather popular, Ezekiel 37, where the prophet is led by the Spirit into a valley. You remember that valley filled with all kinds of dead, dry bones, bones everywhere as far as the eye can see. And then as the prophet is taking all of this in, he is told by the Spirit that he needs to prophesy to these bones. He has to speak to this mortuary. And then he's told the breasts will enter them and tendons will be attached to them and flesh will come upon them and new life will enter them. Now that sounds pretty weird and hopeless. But then we need to realize two things. First, this is a vision. And as visions come and go, it's not weird. And secondly, this is not hopeless either. For notice what happens. Ezekiel is specifically told to prophesy to the breasts and to say, come from the four winds, O breasts, and breathe into these slain that they may live. And what happens? He opens wide his mouth, he prophesies, 
and breath enters into these bones, and before you know it, a bone cemetery becomes a vast army of people standing before him. And we read that, and we scratch our head, and we say, well, what's this? How is this possible? What's happening here? What does it mean? Well, you can say, beloved, this is a vivid illustration of the Holy Spirit at work. This is a display of his power. This demonstrates his exclusive ability to bring dead people back to life. Read verse 14. I will put my spirit in you. And you will live. And you know, that's not the only place where we read about this. If you turn to the New Testament, you have, for example, that interesting but perplexing chapter of John chapter 3. Late at night, a Pharisee comes knocking on the door where Jesus is staying. His name is Nicodemus, and he wants to discuss theology. He prefer, however, to do it late at night and in the dark. And then Nicodemus, before he starts on his theological excursus, he begins with some compliments. But, you know, Christ cuts him off and Christ says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Christ cuts through all the flowery language, all the preambles. He gets to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus, you need to be born all over again. What? Says Nicodemus. Taking these words literally and, and then Jesus tells him about the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to spirit. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. The basic point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making here is that every man or woman needs a spiritual rebirth in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You heard that as well in the form for baptism, which we read a few moments ago, that you cannot enter the kingdom of God, it says, unless you are born again. We need to be born of the Spirit. Also, this child here this afternoon needs to be born of the Spirit. And indeed, the promise of the Spirit is that He will dwell in Him and make Him a living member of Christ. You see, the Spirit has to do it. And only the Spirit can do it. But that, of course, next raises the question, now how is the Spirit going to do this? How does He work faith? And there's been a lot of different answers to those questions. 
There are those who say that the Spirit works face directly. He doesn't use any means or instruments or channels whatsoever. You simply get zapped from above. And bingo, you're a Christian. Others people say, no, the Spirit only works face when, when people yield themselves to the Spirit, when they give themselves, when they submit themselves to the Spirit. And until they do, the Spirit just has to twiddle his thumbs and wait. It's all dependence on our submission. Others say, no, the Holy Spirit works through the water of baptism. That really when this child was sprinkled with water through that baptism, there is regeneration. And so, beloved, there are all kinds of answers, all kinds of responses to these questions. But then, of course, in the midst of all of that, we need to go back. We need to ask ourselves, what now does the Bible say about all of this? What does it reveal to us about the means or the way in which the Holy Spirit does His work? And you know, beloved, the answer of the Scriptures isn't very difficult. Invariably, we are told that the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to work faith in the hearts and lives of his children is by means of the preaching of the gospel. Yes, the preaching of the gospel. Of course, some of you might say, ah, (laughs) of course, the minister would say that. This is all about job security in the end, isn't it? Well, it's not about job security. It's about truth. It's about the truth of the gospel. That's where we learn about this. Take, for example, Ezekiel 37 again. Does it describe a direct working of the Spirit? Does the Spirit simply bypass Ezekiel, zap all of those bones in that valley, and instantly there they are, living beings? In other words, does the Spirit ignore the use of means? Read the chapter. Hardly. No. Time and time again, the prophet is told, you gotta prophesy, man. For something to happen to all of these dead bones, you need to speak to these bones. That's what Ezekiel teaches. And it's not much different in the book of Acts. We've read about that. How did the church arise? How did the church, the New Testament church, get established? How did it grow? Well, again, in and through mainly the preaching of the gospel. Look at Acts 18. The Apostle Paul comes to Corinth. And the going is tough, believe you me. Paul, it says in verse 5, devoted himself exclusively to the preaching, but the opposition continues to mount. The Jews oppose him. They become very abusive. And finally, Paul turns his back on the lot of them, and he says, I'm going to go and work in China. No, I'm going to go and work among the Gentiles. It would appear that 
This basic turn of events discouraged Paul. And we surmise this because one night he receives a very special visit. It says in verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. That's interesting. God doesn't usually do that, does he? But sometimes he does. And what does the Lord say to Paul? He says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And then he adds, for I am with you. And no one's going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. And as a result of this vision, we hear that the Apostle Paul keeps right on speaking, right on preaching for another year and a half in Corinth. And the conclusion to be drawn from the book of Acts is that the principal reason why the church grew was because God used faithful men to keep on preaching the gospel. No matter what the opposition, no matter what the slander, no matter how many beatings they received, they kept on preaching. And indeed, beloved, if you study the history of the Christian church, then you come to exactly the same conclusion. Thanks to the preaching of the church fathers, like Ignatius and Polycarp and Chrysostom and Athanasius, Augustine and others, the church grew around the Mediterranean area. And thanks to the preaching of monks, yes, even monks like Willie Broad and Patrick and Boniface, and Ansgar and others, it spreads throughout Europe. And thanks to the preaching of missionaries like Whitfield and Carey and Patton and Hudson Taylor and others, it spread around the world. Now in saying this, I do not deny that God sometimes uses other means as well. He may use the simple reading of the scriptures. Usually when one of my catechism students comes to me and complains that they know of somebody who's very critical of the Bible, I usually say, have they read the Bible? And they usually haven't. Because if you take the scriptures and you read the scriptures for yourself, you realize that this is no ordinary book. And so through the reading of the word of the Spirit, God sometimes works and maintains faith. But beloved, if you ask what's the principle, what's the main, the, the basic, the overriding instrument that God the Spirit uses throughout history, it's the preaching of the gospel. And believe it or not, Often God uses even bad preaching. Surprising, isn't it? But history also teaches us that. Sometimes the Spirit works in very surprising ways through the Word of God to bring people to faith. And that, beloved, has implications 
It means, for example, that this child, Jaden Davis, Vandergag, as he grows up, needs to be exposed to the gospel. Bible stories when he's young, personal Bible study as he gets older, Bible teaching at school, young people's Bible study, adult Bible study. All of these opportunities are to be grasped and to be used and maximized. And at the same time, he needs to be exposed to the living preaching of the gospel in the worship services. Oh, and then, of course, I realize, I realize that today there are many people who are downplaying the worship services. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of negative stuff floating around. And I notice that in a lot of churches, they don't have pulpits anymore. They have stages. Sometimes I get to do a wedding in one of those churches and I don't quite know where it is that exactly the pastor should stand because there really isn't any place for the pastor. And that's not so bad. But the bad thing is there really doesn't seem to be an integral central place for the Word. And that's bad. So we need to realize... There's a lot of critical stuff floating around. And some of it may be deserved and others undeserved. But what should we say about it? For one, we need to realize that worship is the foremost duty of the church of Jesus Christ. And any changes, any tinkering you do with the worship of God's people needs to be done carefully and wisely and with an awareness of history. Another point, changes in worship should never come at the expense of the proclamation of the gospel. The good news, and often it does, I hear pastors complaining constantly about they need to cut it back, they need to cut it short because there's all this other stuff that needs to find a place in the worship of God's people. And usually it's more exciting stuff. There's little room for the gospel. As a matter of fact, for the gospel to get room, it needs sharp elbows. Create room. And the third thing to keep in mind in connection with his beloved is that a church that neglects the preaching of the gospel is ultimately a church that is signing its own death warrant. You want to kill the church? Kill the word. Kill the proclamation of the gospel. That's what happens. So, beloved, we need to be careful that we do not try to be wiser than God, who's given us of the Spirit, and has always used the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to call people to faith and to keep them in faith. How blessed and how rich is the gospel and its faithful. Proclamation. 
But yet at the same time, of course, that doesn't yet exhaust all of our riches, for as the Catechism reminds us, there is more. In addition to the gospel, just briefly, there is also the matter of the sacraments. Why do we have them? Well, the sacraments bolster, the sacraments support the work of the Spirit. Notice very carefully the language of the catechism. The catechism says the Spirit uses the preaching of the gospel to work faith in our hearts. He uses the sacraments, however, to strengthen that faith. And what that means is that we do not believe that the sacraments actually work faith. They don't have that kind of power, that kind of efficacy. In a sense, then, they're not primary, they're secondary. They're not to lead, but they're to support. And how do they do that? Very simply by being what they're supposed to be. Sacraments. Sacraments are signs and and seals. Sacraments are pointers and, and promises. A little while ago, you saw something. At least some of you did. And most important, these parents and grandparents saw it. They saw water being sprinkled on the head of this baby. And why water? As a sign. Water is commonly in life considered to be the chief cleansing agent in this life. To clean most things, at least that's how it used to be, you needed water, and maybe you still do. I don't know if you can run a washing machine without water, I doubt it. To remove dirt, you need water. And as this water removes the dirt from our bodies, so it's a sign of the fact that the water of baptism removes the dirt and the grime and the filth of my soul and my spirit. You see, water is a sign of the cleansing of this child and the cleansing of all of God's people. And it's also something else. It's a promise, a guarantee, a seal. God speaks to us through the water. And he says to this child, and he says to all of us, just as water cleanses your body, so I promise, I promise to make you spiritually clean. Hereby I am committing myself to making you clean through the blood and the spirit Of Jesus Christ. You see, baptism is not just a pointer. It's an actual promise of spiritual cleansing and renewal. But of course, there's also one more sacrament. There's one that greets the children of believers at the very beginning of their life. There's another that helps them once they come to faith and seek to go forward and onward and upward in this life. And that's the Holy Supper. And again, just a matter of sign and seal. And if you ask, what are the signs of the Holy Supper? Well, you know, bread and wine. 
And what are bread and wine but food and drink? The stuff of nourishment. The stuff that keeps you and I alive. But not only that. Again, it's also a seal. And thereby it promises us something. As seals, God uses also the bread and wine to say to us, as you eat this bread and and drink this wine in order to sustain your physical life. So I'm going to give you that which will sustain your spiritual life. To live spiritually forever. You need the body and the blood of my son. You need a sacrifice. You need his crucified body and shed blood. And this sacrament of the Holy Supper signifies my commitment and my promise to you that I'll always supply what you need in the life of faith. You'll never go hungry. Yes, and so it is, beloved, that God, the God who stands before us at the beginning of our lives is the God who stands beside us all through our lives. When we're young, he claims us as his own. When we grow up, he expects us to claim him as our own. And after we profess faith in him, he keeps us as his own. By nourishing, strengthening, feeding us through this life and all of its ups and downs, its joys and its sorrows, its healthy days and its sick days. He keeps on maintaining us. In other words, in youth and adolescence, in puberty and adulthood, in old age, all through this life and into the next. We have a God who loves us and cares for us beyond imagination. And that, may that blessed awareness, beloved, be for all of us, parents and children, infants and seniors, teenagers and adults, a source of endless hope and bottomless encouragement. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.